So today it's my privilege to kick off what we are going to be doing for the next six months together. Buckle up. We're going to study the Gospel of Mark, and I'm very excited about it. And today I get to introduce it to you, lay the context, the groundwork, some of the interpretive keys that are going to guide our journey. Now I want you to imagine that we have not experienced 2,000 years of Christian history with all of its debate and all of the controversy and disagreements about various secondary doctrines or traditions and worship styles and especially music. If the church has warred about anything over the years, it's been music. All those different things that have kept us in our little separate silos over the years, uh, even though we're part of one church universally. What if we could reset and, 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 it, and just put all those things aside? What we would come to is the pure idea of Christianity represented by two critical questions. Who is Jesus? And what does it mean to follow Him? Now, wouldn't it be great if somebody wrote a book, <clears throat> maybe even a book in the Bible, where they focused on those two things in such a way that we see them absolutely clearly and are once again grounded? Because here's the thing, you get those questions wrong, nothing else matters. But you get them right, <laughs> and everything matters. Everything falls into its place in our life. It finds its purpose in our, our walk with God, our life in Jesus. So it matters. And it happens that there was a first century Christian by the name of John Mark. John was his Hebrew name, and Mark is his Greek name who had those very two things in mind when he wrote his biography of Jesus, which has become one of the four Gospels in our New Testament Scripture. We first see Mark in the biblical narrative in the book of Acts, chapter 12. His mother, Mary, one of the many Marys in the New Testament, his mother, Mary, owned a very large home in Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 12, persecution has come on the early believers. Peter is put in prison. And many of those Christians had gathered in Mary and her son Mark's home to pray. And God miraculously answered their prayer. And Peter is delivered. And like modern day Christians, they didn't expect quite the miraculous when they prayed. And so Peter shows up at the door and they think he's a ghost. It's too late. Peter's ghost showed up. But it's Peter, and he comes into the home. Mark was a, a witness to that in his very house. It's likely, by the way, that that was the home that had the upper room where Jesus and his disciples celebrated the Last Supper. It's also likely that it was that very room where the 120 were gathered in prayer waiting on the day of Pentecost for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's certainly likely that that was a regular gathering place for the apostles and the first Christians during those very heady first years of the church when God poured out His Spirit and thousands were added on the first day alone. Imagine that as a church growth problem. 
And, and they would meet, and we, we see in the Scripture this beautiful description of everyone being filled with awe and wonder and had, having everything in common and gathering all together in the temple and yet in each other's homes, breaking bread, praying together, being devoted to the apostles' teaching, and the Lord adding to their number daily those who were being saved. Certainly, many of those gatherings took place in the home that Mark grew up in. We see him as a young man being recruited by his uncle Barnabas to travel with Barnabas and Paul on their first missionary journey. And we don't know exactly what happens, but it's fair to assume that as a young man, Mark hadn't fully matured yet, and when things got rough, he bails and he heads back home as the missionary trip becomes less than idealistic. And later on, when Barnabas wants to once again bring Mark on another trip, Paul has a serious problem trusting Mark because he knows the difficulties that are ahead, and he has, just doesn't have confidence that Mark is up for it. And that causes a, a strong disagreement between Paul and Mark, uh, Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas takes his nephew, and they head off and continue to minister with people elsewhere, and it's the last we see of Barnabas and Mark in the story of Acts. Paul goes on and has the, the mission of bringing the gospel to the Gentiles, eventually to Europe and uh, to Rome itself. But we do know that somehow, maybe Mark's patient mentoring or maybe just life and growing up and maturing. I mean, I was sure dangerous in my 20s. How about you? I, I would bail on things. God had to break me. And maybe that happened to Mark, because what we do know is that we do see him near the end of the life of both the great apostles of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter, having great value to both of them. Paul would later write and ask for Mark to come, because he'd come to appreciate who he was, found him a comfort and a source of strength to be around. And Peter also acknowledges the closeness that he had with Mark, who has now matured into a godly man. Mark was with both Paul and Peter, Peter intensely, during the final years of their life in Rome. Somewhere in the late 60s AD, Paul and Peter are both martyred as part of the great persecution of the church that happens under Nero. Tens of thousands of Roman Christians were put to death because Nero blamed them on the burning of the city, used them as a scapegoat in his urban renewal project. And many died as a result of it. Mark would have sat under Peter in those final years as he faithfully taught the believers there and told the stories of Jesus who they loved and worshipped and helped them understand what it meant to follow him. But at some point, Peter was not going to be around. Someone needed to capture the stories. And so it's likely that Peter's source material became the primary material for Mark as he was there to write his story, his biography of Jesus. And his goal was simple, to have a permanent record that would help people understand who Jesus was 
and what it meant to follow him. And remember, the first people who read his gospel, many of them would in the years to come pay the ultimate sacrifice for their faith. They would be martyred. And so I believe Mark had it in his mind to help them understand that even that great price was worth the cost to follow this Jesus. And as a result of that beautiful story that's written to tell the life of Jesus, you and I benefit today. And we, if we take this journey together, I promise you, familiar stories for some, new for others, but we will all be transformed by it in a fresh way. And so we begin today in the first chapter of Mark, and we're going to work through the first 20 verses together. I invite you to turn there with me. It's page 707 in the Pew Bibles, and we're going to work right through this, these 20 verses, as Paul lays out four vignettes, four snapshots that set the origin story of Jesus and put in place the drama that we're about to enter into. Of course, he starts right off by telling you what he thinks. He starts right in verse 1. In fact, before we read the passage, let's see it on the screen and say it together. This is where he starts. Say it with me. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark isn't messing around. It's not a mystery novel. It's a real story. It's not something with a twist at the end where we go, oh, he's God. No, Mark wants you to know right up front what he's about to tell you. And now we're going to read the story. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight paths for Him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to Him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by Him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased." At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. After John was put into prison, Jesus went into Galilee 
and began proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net in the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. And we had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Now, there are three Gospels that we call the Synoptic Gospels because their source material seems to be very similar. Um, many scholars believe Mark was the first to write his Gospel and that Matthew and Luke used Mark's resources and mirrored his stories. John's Gospel is somewhat unique in his approach and the way he tells the story, but still obviously uh, truth about Jesus. But Matthew and Luke take four chapters to tell the origin story of Jesus. Mark gets us there in 20 verses. Six paragraphs, and we're off and running. And this will help you understand what we're about to get into. Mark is all about the action. Less words, <laughs> more action. He has less of Jesus' actual teaching. There's important things that Jesus says but less of it and more about what Jesus did in his story. He also uses summary pictures. I'm going to call them vignettes in order to, without getting lost in the details, sit back and see the bigger, more important issues. Because as we will see, he is all about these two questions. Who is Jesus and what does it mean to follow him? And so every story he tells leans towards and pushes us in that direction. So now we have in these very first verses four scenes that you can find whole chapters of in the other Gospels. But he just flies through them. It's almost like in order to get us to the point where the real action starts, he has this sort of prequel. And the prequel has these little vignettes of scenes about Jesus that get to the point that we're going to begin picking up next week. It's almost like, the, like a good movie or a good TV show where they show a few of these scenes, especially some of the British murder plots. You know, they'll, they'll show all these like, little flashy scenes, and then all of a sudden the credits jump in and you know what you're watching. That's sort of what we're in right now. It's sort of these quick vignettes that are meant to set the stage for what we're about to experience together. So let's work through those. I've got a name for each of them. The first vignette is Jesus Promised. And that's the first section related to John the Baptist. Now the name Jesus is also the name Joshua. You might not know that. And they both come from the Hebrew word Yeshua, which means God saves. And it was a common name for men in the time of Jesus because this culture was highly anticipating the coming of Messiah. And so the very name itself speaks about their hope that God would send a Savior. It's no mistake that Jesus was named that by the angel's instruction to his parents. You will call him Jesus 
because he's going to save his people from their sins. And so this Messiah had been promised. Jesus was the fulfillment of more than 300 prophecies in the Old Testament. There's miraculous evidence that he was, in fact, who Mark is going to claim he is, because this could not have been orchestrated by a man. And also, one of the fulfillments of prophecy was the promise of a forerunner. In fact, Mark quotes two prophets, Malachi and Isaiah, about the one who would come to prepare the way for the Messiah. Let's say those verses together. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. This was what Mark came to do. He dressed like a, he was a prophet, a modern prophet in the fashion of the Old Testament prophets. Even his, his garb is described in a way that the prophets in the Old Testament are described. Animal, hair, woven clothing, a leather belt, eating weird things. Prophets did that. They were outliers coming in to speak to the people. And he was the voice in the wilderness the people came out to, and God used him to prepare the way. And so in this narrative, the role that John is supposed to play is threefold. First of all, John is to prepare the hearts of God's people. Prepare the way of the Lord. The mikvah was what he practiced. The baptism of John the Baptist was the Jewish mikvah. It was a very common practice of the Jewish people. And the mikvah, which was an immersion into water and coming out, very much like the baptism that we practice here, believers' baptism by immersion, was twofold in its meaning. First, it was symbolic of the cleansing of sin and the purifying of the heart. And secondly, it was commonly practiced when someone was stepping into a new chapter of their life and they wanted to set themselves apart for God's purpose in it. Young men, for instance, if it was determined that rather than pursuing a trade, they would pursue the, the law and come under a rabbi, would choose a rabbi to take that rabbi's yoke um, and come under him. Jesus used that language when he invited people to follow him as rabbi. And then they would mikvah themselves in the name of that rabbi. So this is a very common thing. And in this sense, a whole generation of people is entering into this rite of purification that declares, I'm confessing my sin, I'm getting right with God. But it was also a way of saying something new is going to happen Messiah is near, according to John's message, and I want to set myself apart for it. So his role was to prepare the hearts of God's people. But secondly, John literally presents the Messiah to the nation of Israel. In John 1, verse 29, we see this very clearly when it describes Jesus coming to him. We're not quite sure in the timeline, in and around the baptism that we're about to see or not. But he, he says, as Jesus comes to the whole crowd, behold the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. This is the one of whom I have been speaking and promising you. He is Messiah. And the third role that John put, plays, quite frankly, is just 
being who he is, is a proof that Jesus is Messiah. Because he is the forerunner. And he calls. So the very fact that John himself is a fulfillment of, New, of Old Testament prophecy is a proof that Jesus, in turn, is the promised Messiah. Very quickly, Mark establishes that through just a few verses. And he's leading us to a very specific conclusion, very quickly. And that conclusion is that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. Just like he starts off in verse 1. The beginning of the ministry of Jesus, the Messiah. And now we go to vignette 2. Vignette 1, Jesus is promised. Vignette 2, Jesus prepares. We have in verses 9 through 13, two scenes that Matthew and Mark devote almost two chapters, or Matthew and Luke devote almost two chapters to. And if you're dying to get into all the details, which Mark doesn't want us to do, at least it's not his intent here, but if you're dying to do some follow-up study, it's chapters 3 and 4 in both Matthew and Luke. And you can get into all the details, the, the heady debate between Satan and Jesus, but Mark doesn't give us any of that. Because his purpose in this vignette has something very specific in mind. He chooses instead not to focus on the conversation leading up to the baptism, but the, the result of the baptism. So let's just break that apart just quickly. First of all, there is the baptism. And we may want to ask ourselves, why was Jesus baptized? If baptism is for the forgiveness of sins, well, that, that wouldn't make sense because we know that Jesus was sinless. Scripture is very clear about that. There was nothing for him to make right with God. Why was Jesus baptized? In fact, when John uh, you know, debates him about being baptized, Jesus says, everything must be done properly. Why is Jesus baptized? Here's what I think. He has lived for 30 years in obscurity, flying under the radar, working under his earthly father, and then caring for his earthly mom when his father Joseph died. No one knows about him. And in the next days, he will be catapulted into the central part of human history. He will become the most important figure in the history of the world and things will never be the same for all of humanity. That's something worth a mikvah. And so appropriately, he acknowledges that that time of living like a human, being tempted and struggling in all ways that we are tempted, but yet without sin, Scripture says, is over. It's time for him to jump forward and to become who he was sent to be, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And so he sets himself apart. But more importantly is what Mark chooses to focus on, which is this amazing thing of the heavens opening, the Holy Spirit coming down and resting on Jesus, and the voice of the Heavenly Father speaking. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased whom I love. It's powerful. It's a sign from heaven. All three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, come together 
to give miraculous witness of who Jesus is. This is an a, a incredibly rare occurrence, occurrence. And what they're giving witness to is that he is not only Messiah, Christ, but Jesus has a divine nature, the very Son of God. The Father declares his great pleasure not only in his Son, but in this moment as Jesus begins his public ministry. And then just as quickly, he leaps forward to 40 days in the wilderness that he gives two verses to. 40 days in the wilderness, fasting, preparing, and being tempted by Satan. And his real focus really is just to introduce two things. One, Satan, two angels. With regard to Satan, he's introducing Satan to remind us that there is a great villain in this story. And he is going to come against Jesus' mission on earth every step of the way. And so we see him introduced very early. And we don't really know many of the details, but he's introduced. But then there's this amazing little comment. I'm going to read it for you. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Now, I believe that angels are at work in our life. Uh, we could have maybe a, a teaching on that. I don't think there's enough angels around for all of us to have our own. Ask me about that someday. I'll explain that. I don't think we all have a protector angel, but I think God puts his angels over us, and we are protected by angels. But my point, I probably shouldn't have shared all that because I probably lost the whole focus by saying that to you. But this is a very particular ministry that angels do. This language, angels ministered to Jesus, speaks of the purpose of angels around the very throne of God. They are ministering to the Lord, and we see visions of this with them happening. And I believe Mark is specifically explaining the angels coming and ministering to Jesus as they do around the very throne of God, along with the reminder of how the Trinity itself, the three persons of the Godhead, come and celebrate this moment and declare who Jesus is to lead us to a second inescapable conclusion about Jesus. And that conclusion is that he is no mere man and he is not just the Messiah. He is the very Son of God. So here we go. First verse, he makes, he's clear. And right away we see two things that point to the reality of why he's written his book. Vignette three. First picture, Jesus promised. Second picture, Jesus prepared. Third picture, Jesus preaches. And boy, could he preach. People said, no one preaches like this man. No one teaches like him. And we see the beginning of his preaching ministry and what would become not just the introduction but the central idea of his message. Let's say this together. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, we're just going to take this apart and just look at what we see about Jesus' message. And it's easy to see. We can break it down into three statements. The time has come. All of history has led to this moment. 
The stage is set for God's eternal plan to be fulfilled. God has been working throughout history in the lives of the Jews to restore them to Israel, to rebuild the temple, to reestablish the sacrificial system. He has been working in both individual lives and in global scale. Rome comes and becomes the first global power and establishes a single language, a common language through which the message of Jesus could be established. Rome's great highway system makes it possible for the gospel to spread at a rate that it never could have up until this moment. And those are just a few of the indicators of why Jesus could say, the time has come, and why the Apostle Paul would later say, at just the right time, God sent His Son born of a virgin. The time has come. God's plan for redemption is about to unfold. The kingdom of God has come near. Now, the Jewish idea of the kingdom of God, even at the time of Christ, had to do with the throne of David. They pictured a Messiah who would come and establish national power as though kingdom in God's perspective was geographic in nature. Earthly authorities, even though Jesus would clarify what he meant by this by saying, my kingdom is not of this world, we have come to understand the Greek word for kingdom, basileia, is not about a geographic region. It's about the act of ruling, and it is very personal. It's life with God. It's life under God. It's life under His care and His beneficent rule. This is the kingdom of God. And Israel has been far away from their idea of the kingdom, but the whole human race has been far from that life in God since our fall. And what Jesus is saying is, life with God is now available. It's come near, and you can be a part of it. And then he goes on and he gives us the path into it. Let's say that last phrase together, beginning with that nasty word, repent. Repent and believe the good news. This is where the Christian message has a hard time with modern culture in the era of enlightenment and humanism. Because Christianity admits that we're all messed up. (laughs) That there's something broken inside of us. And as much as we try through self-improvement and education and social programs and all those different things, technology, information, all that does is give us more things to screw up. We are broken. We need a Savior. And part of receiving that life is an admittance of our need for it, a reality of sin in our life and a need for forgiveness. So when he talks about repent and believe the good news, let me suggest that it requires a change of heart, repent, admitting our need for forgiveness of sin, and it requires a change of perspective. We need to believe. We need to accept the truth about who Jesus is and what life is meant to be in Him. We'll hear more of this message unfold and more of the details of how this takes place through Christ's life and ministry as we go forward.
but we see the pattern already set here. Vignette number four. The first one, Jesus promised. Second one, Jesus, thank you, prepares. <laughs> the third one, Jesus preaches. Now, the fourth is him calling his first disciples. So what should we call that? Well, being a child of the 70s, I'm going to call it Jesus people. How many of you were hippies who came to Jesus and you were Jesus people? handful of us willing to admit we were actually alive and adults back then. Yeah. Jesus always had it in mind to have a people. In fact, we're going to read this. Verse 16, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. And without delay, he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Mark wastes no time in telling us that Jesus wanted people to follow him and actively recruited disciples. He would later come to call this group of people that he had called to follow him and had accepted that call his ecclesia. Our, our word is church. It means the called out people of God. Why? Because Jesus called and we followed. And so this invitation that he gives to these four men is both personal but also universal in nature. Come, follow me. Jesus called them and us out of our current way of life to follow. The Greek word for follow there is to walk behind and in step with. Imagine the adventure that awaits them in falling in line behind Jesus and going on this journey with him. And then he says, I will make you fishers of men. Yes, I've gone to the older translation rather than the NIV translation, which we read earlier that says, if you follow me, I will send you out to fish for people. The NIV is trying to be gender neutral and more inclusive. And while I respect that, it takes away the fun of this passage. And so we're going to go back to the original because I think Jesus is doing a play on words here. So let's start by looking at the word make you. I will make you. What Jesus is promising to anybody who will answer the call to follow him is to bring all the creative genius and power that he used to bring the world into being and to put it on you, to focus all of that creative energy on you and to make you. Paul would later describe us who are in Christ as new creations. That Greek word is a type of humanity that has never before existed, literally a new ethnicity in Christ. That's what Christ is promising. He says, I'm going to you're never going to be the same if you follow me. And now what about this fishers of men thing? We have, we have taken that to you know, be an analogy for evangelism. You know, we grow up and we hear that song, I will make you fishers of men, fishers of men, fishers of men, if you follow me. And, and when we do that, we take away the personal nature of this invitation. 
It's true, God wants us to help other people come to Jesus. But he wasn't speaking metaphorically here. Who were these four men by profession? Fisher men. So what I'm saying clearly is that Jesus' chosen form of humor was a pun. You would have moaned at him just like you moaned at everybody else who uses puns. Because what he says to them is, as they're fishing, hey, you come follow me. No, I'll make you a fisher of men. What he's saying, and I want you to understand, this is actually very personal, just like his invitation to you is a personal one. It's not a broadcast invitation. He looks at them and says, I'm going to take who you are. Your skills, your expertise, your life experiences, even your failures, all the things that have led you to the person you are today. I'm not going to waste any of it. I'm going to give it all an eternal purpose in my plan. And that's what he promises you too. Isn't that amazing? No wonder it says immediately they left their nets and their father and followed him. Following Jesus required the leaving behind of our plans, dreams, and goals, even relationships if necessary, and stepping fully into God's plan, purposes, and goals for us. We must always leave some things behind in order to truly follow a thing or a person and especially a Savior. And so here we are, four quick scenes. And we're already, you know, over our heads, we're already knee-deep in the truth of what, what Mark wants to teach us. Who is Jesus? He's the promised and long-awaited Messiah. He is more than human, but divine in nature, the very Son of God. He has good news for all of us. We can be forgiven of our past and come into relationship with God the Father by repenting of our sins and by believing in Him. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means leaving our old way of living and thinking behind. Entering into a personal relationship with God through Jesus. Being transformed by following Him. Finding our true and eternal purpose in His new life. And that is really good news. And that's just the first 20 verses. So buckle up. It's amazing. Mark has made his claim. And now he's going to make his case. And we're going to journey with that together. Would you promise to join us each week and be a part of that? As our teaching team builds the case with Mark. Amen. Good start.